So if you're staying, if you'll turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we're starting a new series last week called Live Backwards. If you want to live well, you have to learn to live in the light of the, of the end. And we're moving into Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Um, and one of the things we're going to see this morning is actually the limitations of wisdom. And if you think about the modern gospel, like the modern gospel is follow your heart. The anthem to follow your heart, it is the, it is the moral point of practically every um, children's movie that they'll see. Every Disney movie roughly has that as the moral point. Um, if any of you are looking for a research project, Here's a research project. You can come over to our house and we'll lay out all of our children's books. And I would love to see how many at the very end actually have that as, as, as the punchline. I brought, but forgot to bring it up here, I brought Taylor Tiptoe. Now, I'm assuming none of you are familiar with Taylor Tiptoe, but this is a cute little kid's book that currently all of my children uh, love, especially my three-year-old son. Um, but it's about this tiny little ballerina who wants to be a, a star ballerina, and, uh, but the problem is she's too small. And when they're dancing, all the big girls, nobody can see her. So she dreams about being larger, and she goes to the dancing ballerina fairy, and the ballerina fairy grants her her one wish, that she then becomes like gigantic. But now she's too uh, uncoordinated and falls all over the place and can't dance well, so she just uh, wants to return to be who she really is. And kind of the punchline is if you want to excel, uh, she goes and she dances just, just from her heart, and then she wins the starring role and the school's uh, ballet, and that's the punchline. You be you. You follow your heart. And of course, every time we re read the story, I utterly ruin it because I remind my kids that if you actually want to excel in dancing, uh, there's actual like positions you have to learn. You're going to have to practice, and you're going to have to stretch, and you're going to have to get strong, and only one of the kids actually can become the star ballerina. All the other girls didn't, and so, eh, but it ruins the story. <laughs> But that's the modern gospel. Just follow your heart. And then actually what we're going to see in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is Solomon paints a picture of someone who's actually taken that advice 3,000 years ago. It's nothing new. Remember, there's nothing new under the sun. And he followed his heart down every path that it took him. And then it's going to show us a very dark picture of where if you fully follow your heart, where is it actually going to take you? And what we're going to see um, is that every single heart, every person is on this quest. We're, we're searching, we're seeking. And what he's going to lay out for us is kind of the four paths that people go down to try and find meaning, significance. And our themes each week, we're looking, um, Ecclesiastes is kind of this great challenge. Like, um, is life under the sun, this material, physical world, is that all that there is? And if you really believe that life under the sun, this material, physical world, is all that it is, you have to have the courage to face that in all of its horrific reality. But the question is, is that all that there is? Or is there another sun you can live under? So we're going to do those two things, life under the sun and then life under the sun. And under the first sun, we'll see that the search we're on and the different stages 
and the shadow we can't escape. So let's look first at the search we're on. But in chapter 1, now we're going to range over the whole, the end of chapter 1, all of chapter 2. So it'll be most helpful if you have your guide. If you have a Bible, you can open up. We're going to be bouncing kind of all over the place. So you'll want to try and follow along. It might be hard to, you might get your thumb exercise if you're trying to scroll up and down. But we'll want to kind of move all around. Well, first look at chapter 1, verse 12 through 15, because this is going to set the stage for this section. So I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart. So here, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. So I say, under heaven, what, what do we do? What do we actually put our energy towards? And that's what he's going to do, seek and search it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. So that's what he wants to bring you to a place where you say everything we pursue ultimately ends in vanity, striving after the wind. There's nothing stable. What is crooked can't be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. Then in verse 16, he's going to start. He's going to start the, the paths. But a couple things notice, the heart. I applied my heart. Listen for how many times he uses that language. Um, Fourteen times in this section he's talked about, I, I applied my heart. I said in my heart. I went after in my heart. And when we think of heart, don't think just like the emotional center. We, we often kind of reduce, when the Bible talks about the heart, it has something a little bigger than just your emotions. Uh, the heart is the, the, the engine of your life. Or the steering wheel of your life. It actually encompasses, see, often we, we uh, juxtapose our head and our heart. My head says this, but my heart says this. Well, when the Bible talking about heart, it's actually talking about the whole thing. Your, uh, your rationality, how you think, how you feel, and then what you actually do. Like you'll say, I applied my heart, so I did. I did, I made, I built, I bought. And so when the Bible's talking about heart, it's talking about that, the, the totality of who you are. And then look at verse 13, because there's this dark note that God has given to the children of man, this unhappy business that God has given us. There's resonance to Adam in the garden where God confronts Adam about a sin, and he says, hey, it was the wife you gave me. He says, this, this unhappy business God has given us. And then he starts the different stages. So in your notes, we'll have like the, the path one or stage one or journey. There's kind of this sequential movement of the different paths or the different stages uh, that we go on searching. Those are the key words, to seek, to search, and then look in verse 14, the striving. What are we striving after? What are we trying to get? So let's look at the first stage. The first stage is the intellectual quest. So go ahead and there's, bring up that... Uh, bring up the first, the first day, the intellectual quest. And so you can see in verse 1, 16 through 18, I said in my heart, I've acquired, acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experiences of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceive that it's all a striving after the wind. So this very first stage, in essence, is the intellectual quest, the academic quest. Here Solomon's painting a picture of somebody, in essence, who's enrolled in Jerusalem U, and they're going to charge up the kind of the intellectual ladder. They're going to have the two, almost like the two experiences that 
uh, we just assume are what you want in a well-rounded education. Great wisdom, great experiences. Be able to travel the world and see things and then incredible wisdom to know. Knowledge, I want to know. And so this is the, the intellectual quest. It was like, all right, here's a, here's a young man. Here's a young woman pursuing uh, academic achievement, going to be the top of their class. But then what happens? They, oh, something happens where they realize it's just a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. It's almost like the more we tried to grasp and more we tried to learn, the more we realized we didn't know. And it's like we have a saying, ignorance is bliss. Reminds me of the line that I uh, heard the joke about what the teacher wrote on the kids' progress report. If ignorance is bliss, your child should be the happiest person on the planet. <laughs> and one of the things we think, like, ignorance is bliss, but actually, because the more you know, the more you are able to become aware of the difficulties and the problems and the vexations. And so they pursue academic achievement. And then notice moved into stage two, the next quest. I call it, like, the social quest. Look at verse chapter two, one through three. I said in my heart, come now. All right, we're going to have a new test. We've been tested on all this wisdom and knowledge, but there's going to be a new test. Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So it's almost like this next quest is the, the, the social quest. He's going to step out of the classroom and step into the frat house. He's, but he's asking, all right, where does joy really come from? Surely we can find life here. He's going to move on to the party scene, and there's an interesting play on words that uh, Derek Kidner, the Hebrew commentator on this, is the, the two words where he says, I said of laughter and pleasure are kind of giving you two different windows into different paths where people pursue pleasure. So laughter has more of a sense of almost like, I mean, it's kind of like lowbrow, beer and chicken wings, watch a football game kind of pleasure. And then pleasure, the word is more as a high-class, cultured, sophisticated. So somebody's like, I, I went to the sports bar, didn't find it there, so then I went to the wine bar and didn't find it there either. Both have left him empty. And I think one of the things he's hitting at in verse 3, do you, do you see it? Because he says in verse 3, I search with all my heart how to cheer my body with wine, but wisdom, but my heart was still guiding me with wisdom. It was almost like no matter how hard I tried to become fully distracted in this life of pleasure, I always knew it was empty. It wasn't satisfying. It wasn't distracting. And I think if you spent any time just in the nightlife club scene world, one of the saddest things you can see is you can look in people's eyes and you can know they're not happy. They're just pretending. They think they should be happy, but they're not. You know, anytime you pursue, you know, if you're always pursuing pleasures on Friday night, Saturday morning always comes when they're gone. 
And this is what he's going to experience in stage two. So it's almost like stage one, he's going he's to achieve academic success. Stage two, he's going to live the, the party life and, and try to find success there. And then it's almost like in stage three, so the third quest, we'll call it the occupational quest. It's almost like, all right, now it's time to grow up. School's over. Stop the party life. So maybe like first stage, he's in his teens. Second stage, he's in his 20s. Maybe now he moves into his 30s and he says, all right, it's time, to, it's time to accomplish, to go out in the world, time to go to work. And look at verse 4 through 9. And feel, you got to feel all of the subjective I. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been king before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And don't you kind of feel he's moving out into the world? He's like, I'm going to now accomplish something. I'm going to build something. I made, I built, I made, I made, I bought, I had, I gathered. And then that culmination, I became great. Look at the works of my hands, what I accomplished, what I built. You can see in verse 5, there's echoes and resonances of the Garden of Eden. I built gardens, parks, I planted them. It's almost like I'm going to recreate the garden with no God in there. And so he's, he's turned his attention to the occupational quest of these great achievements, treasures, pleasures, cities, incredible accomplishments with beauty, music, culture, and art. And then what does it leave him? And then I think in verse 10, you have the start of the turn, where the turn then is the fourth stage, or the fourth path, which then is the sensual quest. Verse 10 and 11. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. What's he said? The final stage, the central quest is I left no desire unfulfilled, no desire unsatisfied, and no impulse ungratified. And this is one of the reasons I want to say stages, stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four. I wonder if there wasn't a natural progression. Like, all right, I'm going to try success here at this level. Mm, not quite. Let's go down this road. Mm, not quite. Let's go down this road. Mm, not quite. And finally, you get to stage four where you just give yourself up to sensual pleasures. And one of the things to think about, that's, that's stage four, like Christopher Hitchens in his memo where he was talking about um, battling throat cancer. You know, he said, the trouble with stage four cancer is there's no stage five. And then here, this is almost like stage four of soul cancer. And one of the things that should alarm us is because I don't know if there's ever been a culture in the history of the world that is so utterly committed to living in stage four. Like, we actually define freedom as unrestricted impulse gratification. And probably my favorite way to illustrate this is, some of you have heard this, but several, when we were in, when we were in Louisville, um, 
you know, from Atlanta. So halfway in between Louisville and Atlanta is Nashville. So a couple times my parents would come to Nashville for the weekend. We'd come down and we'd see each other. And one, one weekend in Nashville, uh, my mom kind of wanted to see the scenes. And uh, so they took us to the Country Music Hall of Fame. And uh, even though I'm from, I'm from the country, kind of I grew up playing basketball and in that kind of world. And, and country music's not necessarily the soundtrack for that kind of world. And then Cynthia didn't really grow up uh, listening to country here in Winter Park. <laughs> and so we were thrilled to go to the Country Music Hall of Fame, but we didn't really have any kind of personal connection to anything. And so we kind of pull up and there's this giant, like, I don't even know how huge it is, uh, picture of this bearded man. And uh, they were doing this celebration of outlaw country. And so we come in and it was a special commemoration primarily of Hank Williams Jr., but it was celebration of outlaw country. And, uh, you know, we walk in and we start with our tour guide and we're kind of in our group and Cynthia's like, who's Hank Williams? And it's kind of like the record, the moment where like the record screeches and everybody, and I'm like, stop, you're going to, like, we're going to get mugged here. People are going to attack us and throw us out. Just smile and nod. And so we walked through this. It was a celebration of outlaw country, the renegades, the rebels, the people who said no to the man, Hank Williams Jr., Charlie Daniels, Johnny Cash. And we're kind of walking through, and we get to the, the very end, and there was this fascinating interview with Charlie Daniels and Hank Williams Jr., and they were being interviewed. And one of the questions was, like, I, how do you know you've made it? Like, what does success look like in, in your eyes? And uh, Hank Williams said, well... I reckon success is a man can fish whenever he wants to. Man can go hunting whenever, wherever he wants to. A man can sing about any song he wants to. And there ain't going to be no producer ever telling him he can't. And so that's success. That's actually what it means to live the good life as unrestricted impulse gratification. Hunt when you want, fish when you want, sing about anything you want. And what was interesting is we got in the car and we flipped on some music we were a little more familiar with, and it struck me because what came, came on the radio were two, so we kind of, all right, here's two country music stars. Well, we'll be honest. We'll say, all right, there's two rednecks. <laughs> and then here's the testimony from two rappers. And what struck me is, all right, let's, uh, so here, I'll actually, I'll give you the lines from these two rap songs, and this will, if you're familiar, you'll know how long ago this was, but... Um, <laughs> I'll also translate as we read them. <laughs> so here's one. Cubes on my neck, pocket full of Ben Franks. Cubes, that's diamonds, pocket full of $100 bills. When I'm in the mall, the girls just pause. I pass a few tags, and I say, give me that on the wall. So here's an illustration of someone who's in the mall, and the way he represents to females that he's desirable is he can walk by any tag, regardless of what it is or how much or whether he even wants it or needs it, and just say, I'll buy that. I can buy that. So how do you define success or freedom? Unrestricted impulse gratification. Next song. Catch me flossing at the mall, talking to a broad. So a lot of things happened in the mall. This was, this was when malls were cool. <laughs> she followed me in Gucci, and I taught her how to Three pairs of shoes, four shirts, six rags. The chick said, Dag, that's more than my bag. Shorty, I can show you how to spin this bread real fast. So here's somebody also, they're in the mall. How do you know they made it? What a success looks like? I can walk into Gucci and buy anything I want. 
How do you define success? How do you define the good life? It's unrestricted impulse gratification. And what struck me as we were driving back to Louisville is how interesting that is. I mean, here's two classifications of people. Um, the rednecks and the rappers, they probably will not hang out on the weekends. They probably voted for different people. They probably would look at the other and say, you know, it's people like you that are the problem with our country. And yet, at the very heart of both of their core understanding of what it means to live well is the exact same thing. There's no difference. And I think if Solomon was standing there, he'd say, you're both wrong. You're both wrong. If you follow that path down to its very end, it will not lead you to life. Reminded of Marie Antoinette, the, you know, the, the queen of, of France during the French Revolution. And uh, probably few people in history have given themselves so fully to full-on dissipation, to live a life of utter debauchery. And she came to the end of her life and she said, nothing tastes. I can't taste anything. And what you see as you look down these paths, there's almost like this dynamic back and forth between I'm going to try to accomplish something in this world. It's not going to satisfy, so I'm just going to give myself up to pleasures. And the question is, you look at those four, look at the four paths. Is there, is there one you're on now? Is there one where you're traveling down where you think maybe I can find life? I just need to go a little bit farther down the path. You know, I think our culture is definitely in stage four, path four. But what Solomon is going to tell you is I've actually walked down all four paths. I followed my heart all the way down them, and let's see what it left him. Because in chapter 2, 12 through 23, he's going to say, during this path, there was a shadow I just couldn't shake. Verse 12, so I turned to consider wisdom and madness for what can the man do who comes after the king? What's going to happen when I die? At the end of the day, there's a shadow that's looming over me. What then? Only what, is, what has already been done. Then I saw that there is, there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So, so all right, wisdom was good. It wasn't bad. I was able to accomplish some remarkable things. So it's better to be wise than to be a fool. But... Look, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool is going to happen to me. Why then have I been so wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity for the wise as of the fool. There's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise died just like the fool. He said, there's a shadow over all of these pursuits and death turns them stale. Because at the end of the day, they're all fleeting. None satisfied. None are lasting. And even the wise and the foolish, they both have to deal with death. And it's going to take both of us. How the wise die, just like the fool. So look at verse 17. So I hated life. I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity, striving after the wind. Here's a man, he comes to a point of, in essence, this is probably one of the darkest moments in the book. There's a couple times in the book where he cries out as somebody just in the midst of a dark depression. He says, I hated life, death, it's going to, it's, it's coming to us all. And then look at verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. It soured everything because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or be a fool. And yet he'll be master for all that I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This is vanity. So you see what he's saying? There's two things I realized I can't escape. 
Like there's an end that's common to us all, and I can't stop it. No matter what I do, I can't stop death. And then there's an extension that's coming that I can't control. See, once I die, I have to then give all of this stuff over to somebody, and who knows, they might be a total fool. I built this, I made this, I made, I bought, I did all this, and then who knows what they're going to be like. He says, this is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom, knowledge, skill, must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. And this is vanity, a great evil. What has man for all the toil and striving, all the striving, everything we're pursuing, what does it actually get you under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Isn't that a sad line? Even in the night, there is no rest. See, there's an end he can't stop. There's an extension that he can't control. And then what he sees is that when I look on all these quests, what I realize, because death is the shadow over us, that they all will fail to bring satisfaction because it's not lasting. They're all going to fail to bring recognition because it's not lasting. And ultimately, they'll fail to make any lasting contribution because I'll have to give it over to someone and who knows what they'll do to it. They might wreck it all. So he says, ultimately, there's no pleasure, no person, no production that can satisfy. And so as you notice, as you look, do you notice, in essence, one of the key questions is, who is absent in this whole section, and who is central? From 1.14 all the way to 2.23, God is completely absent. And the I, the striving self, is at the center. I mean, he is following his heart with all of his might, and it has left him deeply, deeply depressed. I mean, you kind of need to feel the weight of, so I hated life. So I gave my heart up to despair. That's such a sad line. You notice all of the singular verbs up until this point have been active. I made, I built, I bought, I gave, I did. And then this is the first one that's passive, where he says, I gave up. I gave up. And what's interesting is because, you know, one of the dynamics is that when, what causes people to give up? And it's often when they stare their failures in the face. When they look at the things and they just feel like a failure and it causes them to withdraw, to pull back. And we can do it in so many ways. We can do it at work. We can do it in relationships. We can do it in so many things. You feel a sense of that you're a failure and you withdraw. And what's so interesting is here's a man that Solomon's painting a picture of a man. So you kind of have to see him. You got to see him. I mean, he's standing before you in the finest tailored clothes you can buy. His hair's a little disheveled and there is deep, deep, dark bags underneath his eyes because he hasn't slept and he's saying, I failed. And every one of us would look at him and say, what are you talking about? You failed. Like Hank Williams Jr. and T.I. the rapper would both say, look, what's wrong with you, dog? You made it. You made it. You can hunt whenever you want. You can fish whatever you want. You can walk in Gucci or any place you want. Bottle. You made it. Pop the bubbly and just don't think about it. 
And he would smile at them and say, you only have your happiness because you're not thinking about it. But when I think about it, this is where it brings me. Verse 23 is the inevitable conclusion that if life under this sun is all there is, this is where you have to come to. For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart doesn't rest. But then in verse 24, there's, there's a turn. And Ecclesiastes is a dark book, but there's these rays of sunlight that break through. And there's these little shafts of light. And we're in such a fortunate position because we're not in, you know, in, in the timeline of redemption history. We're post-dawn. Like we live in the age of the resurrection where the light has broken through. But you can start to see some of the shafts of light to break through that are pointing him forward that we then can look back to. But look at 24. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat, who can have any enjoyment? For the, to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom. God has given knowledge. He's given joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. See, the glory and the beauty of the gospel is that life under the sun, the S-U-N, actually Jesus can flip the script and then he can then set a table for us. Notice he can flip the script. Because one of the things you see, actually real joy is not something you achieve Real joy is something you receive. It's his gift. Look what he gives. It's a gift. Real joy, wisdom, knowledge. This is a gift from his hand. And notice who he gives it to. He gives it to the one in whom he's pleased. The one who pleases him. So think, who is it? Who do I know? So is this just like an admonition, be good little boys and girls, and then God will give you, you know, you eat all your dinner, you get dessert at the end, or is there something deeper happening here? Who are we clearly told that pleases, they please the Lord? Remember at Jesus' baptism, the heavens opened up, and what does God say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So he gave his son as a gift to give us the gift of actual joy. And now his son says, if life under the sun, you will never find real rest, but come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Are you weary? You've walked down every single one of these paths and you've learned that the path isn't, or like it's not, the problem isn't you haven't gone far enough down the path. The problem is the path to begin with. You won't find life this way. Come to me and I will give you rest. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gives. Real joy flows out of being a receiver, not an achiever. He gives. He gives his son, and he gives real joy. So actually, if you want to flip the script of all right, follow your own heart, if you want to find real life, don't follow your heart. Find his. If you want to find real life, don't follow your heart. Follow Christ's heart. Look and seek his joy. And then hear the echoes. Look in verse 25. Do you hear it? For apart from him, apart from him, who can eat or have any enjoyment? It's almost like he's saying, apart from him, you can do nothing. Apart from him. These things become gifts. And then what happens is that all of those quests then get flipped. 
So now instead of doing them for the eye, you can do them for the others, and they get transformed. So like stage one, quest number one, uh, you can now pursue wisdom and knowledge not to exalt yourself, but just for the joy and the delight of the thing in and of itself. I mean, one of the things he talks about here is wisdom is such a gift. You can, uh, it gives success, it preserves life, it gives strength, it gives joy. It's a gift. But one of the challenges is to use it for, in essence, others and not just yourself. So some of you, God has blessed with an incredibly sharp mind. But now the question is, do you use that mind to slice and cut others or do you use it to build up and to heal? Kind of like Flannery O'Connor. You know, she was born a southern girl, South Georgia, had several kind of physical um, um, challenges, and even she would say she just wasn't pretty. And, you know, 1950s, not being pretty in South Georgia was a challenge, and so when things that had happened, you know, you'd have kind of these ditzy blondes in her high school class who'd say things, and she had this incredibly sharp mind, and then she would just, like, have these just savage comebacks where she just cut them down, and she would cut them down in such a way they didn't even know they were being mocked. And they just, oh, that's nice. And then she just, you know, and, and, but she'd come home and she'd write in her journal, like, why did I do that? Like, that was cruel. Why? And then one very perceptive moment, she says, when I'm cutting them down, I feel beautiful. And in that moment, she felt beautiful. See, she had been given the gift of a really sharp mind, but she wasn't using it for others. She, or she was using it to destroy, not to build up. But then it says slowly the gospel began to do the work in her life. She could use it uh, to build others up. Stage two, one of the beautiful gifts that the gospel does is it can transform your pursuit of pleasure and laughter to real, genuine joy. Testimony I heard a while back that always struck me the way the person crafted their story is they said it was... Um, it wasn't until they got around a group of Christians in college that kind of what, what, what shaped them, kind of what shook them, is they were around people. It was like for the first time she said she heard clean laughter. She said, growing up, we always laughed a lot, but there was a, a bite to it, a mocking bite. And it wasn't until I got around this group in college of, of Christians where I felt like I heard laughter that was clean. And that's one of the gifts. And look at stage three, one of the gifts of the occupation. All of a sudden, you can be freed from having to build something for yourself, but for others. Notice all the things in chapter two where he said, I made myself, verse five. I made myself. I made it for me. See, it can free you from that obsessive need where you don't need to impress, don't need to prove, don't need to be praised, don't need to do these things so you can be desired but you can actually do them just for the thing itself. So maybe like with your work, God wants you to do something where you're not this smashing success. Maybe he just wants to teach you what faithful living looks like, where you faithfully serve those around you. Or maybe he will bless you with tremendous success, but it's not for you, it's so that you can then be generous and bless others. I mean, think about what would our society be like if more people love, kind of love the thing for the thing? Meaning, like, what if more lawyers loved justice and were in the law because they just loved justice? Or more doctors loved health? Or more teachers just loved knowledge and driving away ignorance? 
One of my favorite descriptions of a teacher comes from Wendell Berry, where he's talking about his, his novels are set in Kentucky, in a country town in Kentucky, so 1900s. And uh, he talked about the greatest teacher Port William ever had. I forget his name, but his, her name, her description, uh, his description of her was that she loved reading and she loved kids and she loved introducing the two. Such a beautiful description. And so it can free you for that. And then the last thing, stage four, the pleasures. It actually can point you to where real lasting pleasures can be found. So as you think about your own life, which one of these scripts do I need flipped? Am I on one of these paths and I need him to flip so I can find real life here? And the last thing real quickly, just look at the, the table he sets. I wonder why it says in verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment. Maybe he would agree. Eat pizza. Eat, drink, and find enjoyment. Let me tell you about three tables that he'll set where you can find life. The first table he'll set for you is just your ordinary, everyday kitchen or dining room table where you gather with the people you love, with normal, simple food. And the reality is if you can't be thankful at that table, there's probably not any table on the planet where you'll really be thankful. If you can't give thanks there, then you probably won't be satisfied at any other table. And that's his first gift. Can you see the gifts that he's laid before you? Then another table that he sets is think about the table from Psalm 23. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me. He guides me. Then there's this interesting phrase that says, he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And one of the things I think he's getting at there is that he... see. We assume that real enjoyment for life happens when we get our circumstances just right. And one of the things is he actually can spread a table for you in any situation, in any circumstance. Even in the presence of difficulties, you can find joy. Even in the pre presence of many enemies, you can find joy. But then the third and the last table is the table that we come to every week. See, Jesus walked through the same world that Solomon walked through. He walked down and he walked through every single one of those paths and the same shadow that loomed over Solomon loomed over Jesus. His sin was always lurking. Death has always been knocking on every door. But in that world, Jesus was able to bring light and he was able to bring life. You know, it's remarkable how many times in the Gospels it shows that Jesus is celebrating with people. He's sitting down at their tables feasting. He's turning water into wine. He's dining with sinners. He's feeding the masses. He's celebrating. And at the very end of his life, he sits at another table before he was crucified. And in Matthew chapter 26, he says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave the disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So every time we come to the table, we actually proclaim his death. And what we're proclaiming is that actually in his death, that's the only thing that has the power to destroy death. 
in his death, death died, and now it's been swallowed up in victory. And that dark shadow that loomed over Solomon that stained everything he did now by the sweet sea breeze of the resurrection has been blown away. And we can live in the light of the gospel of glory where we can find true life. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your grace and we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that life under the sun is not all that there is. And we ask that you would help us. I pray for everyone in this room, every heart we confess that we are We are on a path. We're we're searching, we're striving, we're seeking. And we ask that you help us to reorient our mind and our heart and our soul so that we'll know where we can find life. And now I want to pause and kind of pray specifically for the different areas that we saw. So, Lord, we pray for everyone who's in kind of that first stage, stage one of, of life and their quest. Pray for our schools, pray for our students, pray for our children. Pray for uh, everyone in that world. We thank you for the gift of knowledge. We pray that it would grow. We pray that we would all learn what it means to flourish, that our ignorance would be driven away. I pray that you would bless both those who teach and those who learn. Give us humility of heart to always look to you as the fountain of true, true wisdom. Lord, we pray for... Um, all of us who are trying to seek where to find laughter and pleasure, we thank you for the good gift of your good world. You filled the earth with beauty. Lord, give us eyes to see it. Give us eyes to behold it. Give us the ability to enjoy it with thankfulness and gladness and not to, to use it or destroy it, but help us to enjoy it. Lord, we pray for everyone who's on the path of uh, the vocational path in the midst of their job, midst of work. We thank you for the good gift of our work. We pray that you would help us to find our joy in supplying needs for those around us and in serving others. And now I want to shift and take a, take a moment to uh, pray for Ted and Tiziana Gordillo. So I, um, they are uh, some missionaries in... Um, in Ecuador and their town they're in in Quito uh, over the past couple weeks there's been kind of mass protests it's become incredibly unstable and there's riots that are happening um, all around them so we want to pray pray for them pray for uh, pray for that country and that community so Lord we pray for Ted and Tiziano we pray for um, we pray for Ecuador we pray for all of Uh, the countries in Central and South America who are experiencing instability, unrest, and who pray that uh, you would pour out on them the spirit of love for others. Pray that you would drive away fear so that people do not retreat into um, selfish grasping. Pray that in difficulties that uh, we would uphold one another, that if there's suffering, we would tend to one another. And that whatever results, if homelessness results or exile or loneliness, that your church would rally and it would gather. We pray that you would grant us a, grant them brave and enduring hearts to strengthen one another until these days of testing are gone and you restore peace in our time. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.